Welcome to LaGrave Avenue CRC's Sermon Podcast. You are listening to My Ears You Have Pierced by Reverend Peter Yonker. Before we open God's Word, let's pray together. Please pray with me. Oh, Master, your servants are, are gathered here tonight, ready to open your Word, ready to hear you speak to us, Lord, and we long to hear a good word from you. Lord, speak to your servants. Tell us um, what you would have us do and how you would have us live in your world. But tell us also who we are and to whom we belong. Remind us that your hold on us is everlasting. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Our scripture reading tonight is uh, from an unusual uh, text, an unusual place in scripture. Uh, Deuteronomy 15, I'll read verses 12 through 18. It's found on page 298 in your pew Bibles. This is the law regulating the ownership um, of ownership of Hebrew slaves, when Hebrews own other Hebrews, when Jews own other Jews. Listen. If any of your people, Hebrew men or women, sell themselves to you and serve you six years, in the seventh year, you must let them go free. And when you release them, do not send them away empty-handed. Supply them liberally from your flock, your threshing floor, and your wine press. Give to them as the Lord your God has blessed you. Remember that you were slaves in Egypt, and the Lord your God redeemed you. That is why I give you this command today. But if your servant says to you, I do not want to leave you because he loves you and your family and is well off with you. Then take an awl and push it through his earlobe into the door and he will become your servant for life. Do the same for your female servant. Do not consider it a hardship to set your servant free because their service to you these six years has been worth twice as much as that of a hired hand. And the Lord your God will bless you in everything you do. This is the word of the Lord. So I think I was early on in my high school uh, career, early in high school, when a new fashion trend showed up in the halls of my high school, which was not a Christian school, it should be said. And uh, it, was a, it was a male, it was a male uh, fashion trend. All of a sudden, in the halls of my high school, guys were getting their ears pierced. Uh, up to that point in my life, I'd never seen such a thing. But all of a sudden, in the, the, uh, the early 80s, there were these guys, and they were getting their ears pierced. Some of the more daring, fashion-forward men were, were choosing to do this. And it turned a lot of heads and caused a lot of conversation. Now, you think it caused a lot of conversation in my high school. Imagine the conversation when the first earring, male earring, showed up in the first Kingston Christian Reformed Church. The first Kingston Christian Reformed Church uh, was not a place of cutting-edge fashion. The first Kingston Christian Reformed Church was not a place of cutting-edge anything. But one September, this young couple walked right down the center church. I think they were grad students who'd come to the local university, a young guy, and in his ear was a single gold stud. And the tongues wagged. 
Um, some people didn't think it was a big deal. My parents, eh, didn't matter to them. They'd lived in Berkeley for a year. They'd seen worse. <laughs> I'm not making that up. But most of the older Dutch ladies found it echt verschrikkelijke. Now, of course, that all seems a little bit quaint now, doesn't it, right? I mean, men have been piercing their ears, and, and men and women have been piercing all sorts of things um, since that time. But back then, it was a big deal. People were upset. And I remember uh, a little later on, one of my fashion-forward friends, I never did this, just so you know, but one of my fashion-forward friends did this, got his ear pierced, and he got all kinds of remarks at church, including uh, a male who came up to him one time and said, whose slave are you? And at the time, we were like, what? What has that got to do with it? We didn't understand at all what he was talking about. But of course, he was talking about Deuteronomy 15. That's what Deuteronomy 15, whose slave are you? That's, that's the question of Deuteronomy 15. At the center of the, well, excuse me, at the center of this passage, of course, the slavery uh, in those days was a little different than maybe what we think of, say, when we think of slavery uh, was, as it was practiced in the United States. The slavery in those days was what you call indentured servitude, which means that a Jewish person who became mightily indebted to another Jewish person and couldn't pay off the debt would enter into slavery, into indentured servitude with that other person in order to pay off his debts. And it couldn't go on forever, as you heard. It, it could only go on for a maximum of six years. And after six years, that person was manumitted. They were set free. But those six years couldn't have been easy. I'm sure most of the people who served as indentured servants did it with gritted teeth. I'm sure that most of the people who served as indentured servants as these slaves could not wait to be done. They served with the spirit of a fourth grader doing their algebra. But now, so most of the, I'm sure most of these people, you know, gritted teeth and, and grumbling. But there's also another possibility that Deuteronomy 15 holds up. Verses 16 and 17 suggest that maybe you could serve in an entirely different spirit. Maybe you entered into the service of, of this other family and you loved this family and they loved you and you felt so free and you felt so good in their service that you decided, I'm gonna keep this up. This is how I want to live the rest of my life. And if you wanted to do that, then you would take your earlobe and you'd put it against a door and the owner would take an awl, a little pointy piece of metal, I can see some of you wincing, and they would press it through your ear into the wooden door frame, and then you would be that person's servant for the rest of your life. Only it wouldn't be slavery. It would be joyful service. Your duty would be a delight. That was the law in ancient Israel, and of course that law isn't just a law that describes how indentured service could relate to their masters. It also is a metaphor for the service that we might provide and render to our master. In fact, I think that Deuteronomy 15 is what Psalm 40 is talking about when it talks about our service to our master. Now, I didn't read Psalm 40 tonight. I 
encourage you to go home and read it yourself. But in the middle of Psalm 40, verses 6 through 8, there's a familiar bit which is really hard to read. It's hard to read in the Hebrew, and it gets translated in wildly different ways. So, for example, if you were to look in your pew Bible, verse 6 would be translated as, Sacrifice and offering you did not desire, but my ears you have opened. Okay, so sacrifice and offering you did not desire, but my ears you have opened. That's your pew Bible. But if you were to go back to the old translation of the New International Version, so that was our old pew Bible, it would say this, and maybe you remember it from reading Psalm 40 back in the day. Sacrifice and offering you did not desire, but my ears you have pierced. Do you remember that? Sacrifice and offering you did not desire, but my ears you have pierced. That's another way of reading this text. In one reading, the psalmist is saying, oh, the Lord has opened my ears so I can hear better. But in the other reading, the old reading, the psalmist is saying, Lord, you've pierced my ears so I could be your joyful servant for the rest of my life. I like the old translation better. I think the old translation is more on track because the old translation fits better with the story of Psalm 40. Now, I don't know how well you remember Psalm 40, but the story is something like this. The psalmist describes at the beginning of the psalm how his life is a mess. It's like he's stuck in a pit. It's like he's stuck in the mud and the mire. But he cries out to God, and the Lord raises him out of the mud and the mire, gives him a firm place to stand, a broad and spacious place, and puts a new song in his mouth, right? So this, this, this psalm of, of, of an amazing rescue, and the psalmist is full of thanksgiving for the rescue of God, and he does what any good Jew would want to do when they're very thankful. He wants to offer a thank offering. Now, a typical thank offering is a lamb or a goat offered in the temple. But for the psalmist, that's not enough. He doesn't want to offer a lamb or a goat. He wants to offer himself. Like Romans 12, he wants to be a living sacrifice. He wants to offer his whole self to God. So he says, my ear you have pierced. Lord, pierce my ear so I can be your joyful servant for the rest of my life. Joyful service to our master. Slavery is not a very popular metaphor when it comes to describing our relationship to God these days. It's a definitely a biblical metaphor, but it's not very popular. Preachers don't generally bring it, and there's good reason for that. Slavery destroyed many lives in this country and all over the world, and slavery continues to destroy many lives. So there's good reasons not to use this metaphor. There's also bad reasons not to use this metaphor. Sometimes we avoid this metaphor simply because it has any whiff of hierarchy or authority or submission in it. In this day and age, we don't like any metaphor that speaks of us submitting our will to another being, whether that being is God or whether that being is another human being. So, Lord and Master and King, all these metaphors have fallen out of favor. Instead, people are using more egalitarian metaphors and caring metaphors, which are also in Scripture, but these authoritarian ones are too. And that's because people think 
that if you submit your will and your opinion to any other will or opinion, you're weak. This is true, and a good example of this is in how we ground our moral choices. Listen to how people today justify their actions and ground their moral choices. So for example, high school students or adults too, if they choose not to drink at a party, if they go to a party where alcohol is offered and they say no to it, they probably won't ground their moral choice by saying, my parents forbid it, nor will they say, because it's illegal and I'm underage, nor will they say, because the Lord commands me not to do this. What will they say? They will ground their moral choice in their own opinions. They'll say, yeah, I, I don't really like the taste of alcohol. Or, I got a track meet tomorrow and I got to keep clean. Or, eh, I just don't feel like it tonight. That's how people justify themselves. You hear that they're, ju they're justifying it, not in some other out there authority that's pressing in on them, their own moral authority, the authority of their own feeling, the authority of their own opinion. That's not just how people ground moral choices these days. It's also how they make moral appeals. And I'm probably guilty of this too. If I stand up here, or if a person is standing up here and I'm trying to make a moral appeal to you, say that my moral appeal is that sex outside of marriage is bad, I'm less likely to say, because the Lord commands it, or because it is in the law of God, authority outside of yourself, and today you're much more likely to hear, well, studies have shown that people who save themselves from marriage have much more rich and satisfying marital lives. And it's a great way to avoid disease, etc., etc. Again, grounding it in self-interest, grounding it in your own moral feeling and your own moral authority. If you make a moral choice because it's what you feel and what you want, hey, great, you do you. If you make a moral choice because somebody else's authority told you to do it, in this day and age, people look at you and say, you're weird and maybe a little weak. Reminds me of Jeremy Begbie. Jeremy Begbie, a British theologian and musician uh, who's spoken in Western Michigan a number of times. I think he spoke at Calvin's January series before. Uh, did not grow up as a Christian, but he was this brilliant young man. He studied philosophy, he studied history, studied English, and he studied music. And he decided he was going to be a concert pianist at 19. So he went off to, I forget what it was, Oxford or something like that. But then he started to feel the tug of the Holy Spirit on his heart. And he started to feel himself becoming a Christian, but he resisted it. Why did he resist it? Because he loved music so much. And he loved English, and he was so passionate about those things, and he thought, oh man, if I become a Christian, I can't care about those other things so much. All I'll be able to care about is is Jesus and church stuff. Everything else will have to go to the wayside. But then when he finally gave in and became a Christian, he found out how wrong he was. It was exactly the opposite. When he became a Christian, his musical life became richer and deeper and more colorful. All of a sudden, the music wasn't just about performance. He saw the spiritual dimension to his music. And all of a sudden, when he played, it wasn't just about performing and, and achieving some sort of level. It was about 
joyfully expressing what God had given him and his life was founded in grace. Completely different from what he thought. It puts to lie extreme individualism, which says that you should be the ground of you. True flourishing comes when we are rooted in and submitted to the will of our master. We all end up serving something in this world. Even if that something is the current whim of your heart, the current passion of your heart, even, even if it's the sort of the feelings that blow around in your head from day to day, we all end up serving something else. And money, sex, power, beauty, all of those things which promise such great things to individuals if you serve them, they're all lies. Not only do they enslave you, they do more than that. They consume you. They eat you up. Jesus is a very different kind of master. Jesus is a boss that you could fall in love with. He's a boss who gives you the freedom to do your thing. He gives you a very specific vocation and call, the kingdom. But within that call, man, you can use your, your gifts and your talents and you could be creative and he's always there for you. He's not distant from his workers. Anytime you get in a little trouble, you can call on him. He's always ready to listen. In fact, one time he came right down to the factory floor to work right beside us in the incarnation. And his work is really satisfying. There is no more meaningful work than the work of love and justice that he gives us. And finally... When you work for Jesus, if times are tough and there are cuts to be made or debts to be paid, he doesn't pass those debts and those cuts on to the workers. He takes the debt upon himself. He takes the cuts upon himself. He will allow himself to be pierced for the sake of his servants, for us and for our salvation. He's a pretty great boss. He's a boss you could fall in love with. But you don't need to have your ear pierced because he was pierced for you and you've been baptized. And so you belong to him already. Thanks be to God. Lord God, you know how fiercely independent we are. You know how much we like to go our own way. And Lord, you know how much the world around us encourages that. Lord, help us to be properly rooted in you and in your love. Thank you that you are a master who pours out your love and your grace upon us, Lord. May we feel that love, may we know that love, and may that love send us out into the world this week to flourish in your paths. Amen. Thank you for listening to the Grave Avenue CRC's Sermon Podcast.